also address the lack of validated biomarkers. And that's the second big thing uh, that we've tried to discuss here at the podcast. And I think through the work that Mazen, Nureddin, Neymar Khoury, Rod Lumba, and also Alina L have been doing around imaging biomarkers, MR, uh, the field has uh, just evolved. And we are clearly, it feels like, uh, taking big steps forward. It's interesting you should mention that because shifting away from this episode to some of the other things that we're going to be replaying for people this week, on Saturday, we're going to be looking at three conversations, three little 15, 18 minute snippets from episodes that were extremely well downloaded. The biggest one, of course, was the one with you and Stephen summarizing what you heard from Scott Friedman and Lars Johansson at the Paris Nash. But one of the other two is specifically about that. It's what was the takeaway from AASLD 2021 on the issue of the need to improve biomarkers and diagnostics in general, but really uh, non-histopathological, um, both MRE and the liquid biomarkers. And yeah, I think that's been another major theme in the, in the field over the last two years, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you just revisit the last ILC, it's not just that we're in the position to actually define those diagnostic biomarkers, but we're starting to discuss prognostic biomarkers with health that has been had, uh, received approval by the FDA in certain populations, histology at baseline, or the whole data sets that we've discussed with the work that's been done by Hannes Hackström's uh, group or recently presented by Quentin Nancy with regards to outcomes in FIP4 or high categories, the differentiation between liver outcomes and cardiovascular outcomes. That feels like light years away from what we were thinking and knowing in 2020 because we're much more focused on, on outcomes, the role of surrogates, which patient population should be included in clinical trials. You know, And if I think back up to our conversations, we had a lot of these aspects were discussed here and in Surfing Nash. And that's what I value the podcast for. It's really state-of-the-art science that's important to the field that's being recapitulated here. Yeah, I agree. And, and frankly, it's a lot of fun. When I decided to do this week's episode, I didn't realize how much fun I was going to have listening to old episodes and saying, gee, people have really, you know, changed tunes and thinking about moments and papers that did that and possibly ways that the podcast helped to shape it. So on Sunday, we're going to go back into season two for one thing and then stay in season three for the other two. Before we do that, I want to cover the one other episode that's going to be part of The Greatest Hits, which is we're going to take something out of episode 14 from season three, which was Quentin talking about the Brunt paper and then the extrasode where we talked about Q-ballooning. And I believe we'll actually not be talking about the Q-ballooning, probably about overreaders and underreaders, which I thought was a fascinating. But I'm wondering if you felt the impact of that paper in any of the work that you're doing right now in any of the different venues, a drug development clinic, public health, all the questions around the meanings of balloon hepatocytes and how it affected drug trials and everything else. Have you, has that had any impact on anything you're working on yet? It has a big impact on the way I practice medicine in the, in the field of NASH here because it has very clearly demonstrated scientifically sound in an academic way that there is variability to biopsies, which we didn't know before, but nobody spelled it out to the same extent. And the variability of reading, which doesn't mean that the pathologist is not doing a good job, it's the variability around the morphology of such a balloon cell and then, of course, the limitations that biopsies do have with regards to producing a representative sample of a patient that stresses the big unmet need 
to develop and validate NITs and link them to outcomes. Most of my clinical work I'm doing right now is, is exactly around that, consulting a patient or advising a patient on what is the value of uh, obtaining a liver biopsy now? Does it help us in staging your disease? Um, can we use it to enroll you in a clinical trial? What is the standard of care? Do I have to worry about my future? The, the concerns the patients are having, what does that mean? That disease, you're, you're saying I'm suffering from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. What does that mean for me personally, for my family? I think we, we've been linking the disease so strongly to pathology that that data set, or all these data sets that um, highlight the limitations of liver histology are very, very important to both clinicians and, and, and patients. As such, I would say, yeah, this, this has really been one of the, the big papers uh, in the field here. Jörn Schattenberg. You know, to extend this discussion a little bit, and I think Ian mentioned this briefly, is really do we require or do we think an entry test would be the way to go? There's German guideline for NAFLD coming out that will, like many guidelines are discussing now, will probably require metabolic risk factors, ready liver on ultrasound, or um, lab abnormalities as an entry criteria for then use transit elastography. And the thought behind this, obviously, is to enrich the at-risk population and have a, a total different population. Whenever you're asking for data, it's very critical to actually look at the population that's involved because pre-test probability will affect all these numbers that Chris then uses to calculate the models are so crucial. And I don't think we have a uniform study or, or a patient population that's been selected like that that we can use to actually come to a concluding uh, answer. There's a lot of studies that do look at the diagnostic modality in terms of accuracy, but again, the entry criteria, which patients are studied, are critical. And maybe this is something, you know, that Chris might discuss further or, or, or comment on, you know, depending on what population goes into your model, that the outcome will be very different. Or even, you know, as Ian has experience with this, um, I think this needs a lot of thinking. Chris Estes. Yeah, when we look at costs, you know, we look at a cascade of care. So you would be screening a general or an at-risk population. And then of those that are positive, then those people are going to incur further diagnostic costs as you try to you know, do further testing. And then you have the cost of these people have to be under care. And then they also have to, if there's an intervention, those people have to be enrolled in the intervention. And at every step of the way, you're going to lose patients. So one example from the U.S. is that when people used to donate blood, and they tested positive for hepatitis C, they would get a letter in the mail saying, you donated blood and you were positive for hepatitis C. And if you follow back with these people a year later, a lot of them weren't even aware that they were positive. Um, because they received the letter and there was no further action, no one linked them to care and there was no intervention. So when we look at the fiber scan, we have to think about what are the downstream costs and what will be the future costs of the intervention. So, I mean, one way you could look at it is people with elevated liver stiffness. If those people were then enrolled, say, in surveillance for HCC, liver cancer, because we know that people don't have to have cirrhosis to develop HCC, they could have asymptomatic baffled NASH and then develop HCC from there. So if they have elevated liver stiffness and they're actually enrolled in enhanced surveillance of liver cancer, how many early cases of liver cancer could be caught early and, you know, would be the disease and economic burden of as a result. So it's kind of looking at this cascade and, you know, the different levels of actually getting patients screened, further diagnostic testing, enrolled in care, and then the intervention itself. Chris, you ask a great question. Is there anywhere that you're familiar with in any of the countries that you're looking at that has any data that looks like it might be an answer, not necessarily to NICE in the UK, but just in general? Can you presuppose some of that based on data that you've seen or modeling even on? I mean, the fiber skin studies are still fairly early. So there hasn't, you know, they've gone into general population and these are kind of done at tertiary care 
centers. They're not done in the large scale in the population. So I, I'd say, you know, like right now, they're more investigatory. One thing that would be also helpful if looking at fiber scan data is to have more longitudinal data. So right now, a lot of the published studies are cross-sectional where they look at a single group of people at a single point in time. And what we need to actually is follow up how their fiber scan measures are changing over time. Because this has always been the challenge with modeling NAPLED and NASH is a huge uncertainty around progression rates. And a lot of the progression rates are based on liver biopsy studies. But we know there's a huge variation in liver biopsy just depending on where the liver is sampled. So this is kind of what we don't know is if someone is F1, what is their likelihood of progressing to F2 in a given year? given a set of risk factors, or what even is the risk of regressing back to F0 given a certain set of factors. So it's kind of getting this longitudinal data of a fiber scan, combined fiber scan would be really helpful for modeling and understanding the future disease burden. Louise Campbell. Can I ask you, Chris, have you done any of the modeling with the scenario of the post-COVID pandemic delaying diagnosis in most of these diseases and conditions? We're talking about two-year backlogs. I certainly know some units that have longer than that. We're doing a project at the moment with somebody to try and clear their list in six days. So with the increase in alcohol consumption and the increase in BMI, if you were to model out on what you had previous to the pandemic, what numbers are we talking about increase that we've missed? I know that the Lancet Commission said we may miss 46,000 cancer patients a year for liver cancer in Europe. So do you have any modeling figures on non-diagnostic effects? We haven't looked at that specifically for NAFLD. We have done a modeling exercise for um, viral hepatitis, where we've looked at what's happened now that we're, you know, the treatment with the new therapies coming out for HCV, what's been the impact of this two, we call it a two-year delay. And it turns out that the impact is going to be greater than just would appear apparent from the two-year delay. You're going to have more liver cancer cases, more cirrhosis cases, potentially for years and years to come, just from these people not being screened and diagnosed. So it's a long-term impact. It's not just going to last one or two years. That's my concern. This document is being proposed now with no discussion of how COVID could affect the diagnostics for liver and it won't be reviewed for three years. Um, so therefore, we would be without Fibroscan in the UK and in a lot of other countries that look at NICE when they deliver a suggestion or a guidance for over three years while we actually building back from a pandemic. What I would ideally like to see is I agree with a lot of what's in the document for good reasons, but I would like to see this now being done in conjunction with a pandemic and given draft approval for figures to look and collect all of this data that they want and ask, but also to help fight back better. Um, if you look at Harman's studies, you increase the diagnosis of cirrhosis by 140% if you use Fibroscan in a community setting. These are the ones we're most greatly going to miss. Rather than stop these documents coming through from any speciality through NICE, we need to put them into a pandemic discussion and have that at the table. So even a pre-approval to get the data, because this is a device that helps us get ahead of the curve to some extent because we all use it in secondary care and we can develop those pathways as we build back so I think that might be something that I would like to see considered rather than just carte blanche let's not use it at all for three years <laughs> I guess the challenge in this is Louise that the situation is so dynamic it's probably difficult for a model to capture this you know and we're talking about confounders here of course this is a pretty big and long 
term confounder, but I, I do see that as a challenge. And the, and the problem with these consultation guidelines, also as I uh, experience these from other countries, is that they're not as dynamic or can't be as dynamic because you need to generate the data and the outcome. Uh, so that's the downside. On the other hand, again, it's very encouraging that these type of discussions are ongoing. And as Ian said, I think there are some target conditions being defined and some knowledge gaps being raised. And that's really one pathway that you can move forward on to then define the benefit in, in these effective modeling in the end. And, and I think this is a first important step to, to then implement this, this type of, of care. And again, the big difference for me is that we're talking about fibrosing liver disease. This moves beyond presence of NAFLD, what we discuss a lot. It's about identifying relevant liver disease, as you said, identifying compensated cirrhosis, where probably the biggest benefit can be made in the short term. So my take home is that we're setting up this study. We should take populations that are severely liver diseased and follow them up for a short period and show a benefit. And that will then allow us to make recommendations and come up with data uh, in, in a shorter time frame. Ian Rowe. In some ways, these decisions that, although it's not finalized, sometimes feel as if they're going against us, help us in the longer term. And I think a lot of the data that you've referred to, Louise, from, you know, whether it's from Camden and Islington or from the Nottingham Scarred Liver Project, you know, that that's still, it's primary care testing, but with secondary care care guidance and we probably shouldn't forget that NICE already support director director fibre scan testing for patients who've got hazardous alcohol consumption. In, in many ways we're quite far advanced in identifying those patients as Jorn said who've got fibrotic liver diseases. You know the bigger question is whether a fibre scan done in primary care setting or delivered by a secondary care person in primary care really whether that really matters and what the best pathway to get there is whether we can afford to whether it would be right to fibre scan everybody who's got a metabolic risk factor or whether you know whether we need to make the pathway slightly longer so we don't lose patients as Chris says with repeated testing and failures in linkage to care so that we're rational efficient and patients get to a diagnosis quickly still that's a remaining open question about how we how we best how we best manage those those patients at risk oh no and I absolutely agree with that there are additional pathways that have been suggested there's a sequin here for everybody who's been admitted for 24 for hours to an emergency hospital, whether in mental health or in acute setting, is offered a fibre scan. Now that cannot happen because nobody has access to it. The National Health Service health check for everybody over the age of 40, if you have an audit score for alcohol of 16 and greater, you should be offered a fibre scan. Your GP does not have access to deliver or comply with these tests. So none of these two areas weren't discussed in this document or put forward. So the NHS is approving pathways ways where fibre scan is advocated for with no access to it. So it allows non-compliance. Nobody can comply with the sequin 2021 which was rolled over because nobody has access. Nobody can comply and that's one side not speaking to the other side. But from a patient perspective, I don't necessarily want to have a biopsy. I don't necessarily want to travel to be told that actually I'm the 9 out of 10 people who didn't need to come here because I've got a soft fatty liver. This is what not giving a diagnostic test does potentially raise from my perspective but we exclude the most vulnerable people with usually the highest rate and risk of liver disease because they don't want to access secondary care and this isn't going to currently in its format assist that and I don't see how we target the highest risk populations without access to a way to solve it I suppose that allows us to do it in a timely manner given the increase in disease we're going to see. So mostly I've listened. I have a couple of rather specific 
questions based on kind of everything I've heard. First one, this is to Chris. It's, it's a word that Louise just used that I think I not answered this in the U.S. I assume it's going to be the same in the U.K., but I want to make sure I'm right in the U.S. first. Louise talked about lower income people not wanting to go to secondary settings. I think part of the problem that you see is that because it's the same thing with COVID-19 vaccines, right? You had people who wanted the vaccine, but either didn't have transit to get there or couldn't afford to take time away from work and childcare and had no backup provision to do so. A, is that what you would expect to see if you looked at it? Have you looked at it in the States or in the U.K.? Is that what you would expect to see if you did? And then I'll turn to Louise and say, when you say want to, is that really what you're talking about? And I have a couple more questions after that, but let's do that one first. I mean, in the U.S., the populations that we think of as being, you know, very high risk of NASH and NAFLD are especially underserved. In rural areas, there's very little access to specialist care. People under 65 without good health insurance, this is a very U.S.-specific problem. But if you're under 65 without good health insurance, the cost for specialist care can be prohibitive. Found, you know, general population interventions really need to involve primary care. And this is just due to capacity. Um, even countries with a large number of specialists can't um, enact large screening or intervention programs just using specialists alone. The primary care is really essential. And if you think about underserved communities in the U.S., that's all they have access to is really primary care. Traveling a long distance and incurring high costs is just not an option, especially for those most at risk of national NAFL. I guess my point is that that's not an issue of want. That's just an issue of socioeconomics and the structure of life and need and demand on time and all that stuff. In the U.S. and in other countries, we know that obesity and metabolic syndrome can be correlated with socioeconomic status. So people that are lower socioeconomic status have less access to health care and pay more a greater proportion of the income already for health care. And they're not in a position to actually, especially in rural areas, to travel long, travel or incur extra costs for care. Um, and we know with COVID, the latest data are showing the opioid epidemic has increased substantially. And Louise mentioned the increase in drinking and obesity. So it's a perfect storm now where you have people without insurance, worsening health indicators. So it's kind of a, a perfect storm of risk factors here. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Surfing the Nash Tsunami.